Hi there, welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. I'm not going to have you stand today, uh, and I will make that reason known here in a minute. Father, we do thank you for just another chance that we come here, Lord, to hear your word, to sing praises, Lord, to hear testimonies like Gary's. This is a fellowship of the saints. There is nothing better on this earth than what we are experiencing right now. I pray, Father, you just have your way in this service. Anoint these lips of clay. Touch every heart in here. We ask in your name. Amen. Let me ask you. Did your mother ever begin her bedtime story from the Bible like this? Once upon a time, there was a civil war between Abner and Ipshoseth. And then Asherah, I'm sorry, and one day 12 men fought with 12 other men, and all 24 got disemboweled. And then Asahel pursued Abner, and Abner also disemboweled him. And then there was Abner, who was disemboweled by Joab, who was later himself disemboweled by Abishai. Now here's your teddy bear, sweet dreams, my darling. That is what we will be looking at this morning. We're going to do the entire chapter. We will take a five-minute break in about an hour, and hopefully be done around 2 o'clock. Plus, the Vikings are off this week, so there's no reason to go home early. Verse 1. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. It happened after this. After what? After Saul died. This suggests that very little time has elapsed between the events of the previous chapter, namely David's receiving and responding to the news of Saul's death and what happened next. As David first comes into power, notice why he does the very first thing. He prays. Here we see a real secret of David's success and why it was he was used so effectively by the Lord and why his life has such a great impact that we are studying him to this very day. David was a man who inquired of the Lord. Is this the right time to go into the cities of Judah, David asked. Yes, the Lord answered. Where should I go, David asked. To Hebron, the Lord replied. When David asked if it was time for him to go into the cities of Judah, God could have said, yes, go to Hebron first. But he didn't do that. He gave David the specific information that he asked for and then waited until David asked for more. He first gives general directions, 
and then specific instructions. And the Lord does the same with us this morning. He isn't reluctant to give guidance, but there's something more important to the Lord than simply guidance, and it's called intimacy. If you've prayed repeatedly for direction concerning a given situation, but you still aren't sure what the Lord would have you to do, perhaps it's because He loves you so much that He wants to keep hearing from you. He wants you to come into His presence time and time again, and He wants you to feel the embrace of His grace. Corey Ten Boom asked this pointed question, Is prayer your steering wheel, or is it just your spare tire? You see, many of us pull out prayer out of the trunk when we're feeling flat or there's been a blowout. However, prayer should be the steering wheel that guides us through the day by keeping us out of the ruts and the ditches of life. Now, some days I can think that I can make it through the day by skipping my devotions. How massively stupid and arrogant of me. Prayer is the highest and most important calling of any believer. It will keep you out of the ditches of depression, the ruts of predictability, and the snares of seduction. At the outset of his reign, David models the absolute necessity of prayer. Now here perhaps is a subtle irony. Saul's name has been significant through all this story. He was the one that was asked for by the people. And literally Saul's name is, you asked for it. David's movement toward the kingship, however, began with a very different kind of asking. David asked the Lord. Verse 2. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him every man with his household, so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Now, did God approve of David having two wives? No, he did not. Polygamy was not forbidden in the Old Testament, although problems were definitely anticipated. The Lord allowed it in the same way that he allows us to sometimes do stupid things. But it was not the heart nor was it the will of God. Jesus said, For this reason a man shall leave father and mother and cling to his wife. I'm pretty sure that's singular and not plural. And the two, not the three or the five or the sixteen, will become one flesh. But perhaps the greatest scripture against having two wives is when Jesus clearly taught us that no man can serve two masters. Ask Gary. Not only that, the thing with having multiple wives is they will soon start spitting out kids like one of those Pez candy dispensers. And we will see how much misery some of those kids are going to bring David's life. In verse 2, we see that for the first time in 10 years, David and his men are no longer fugitives. His men had suffered with him, 
and now they're going to reign with them. It was a small beginning, but a massively significant one. As one writer put it, it is a small beginning, but it is the kingdom of God, concrete, visible, and earthly. The kingdom of God has for the moment tucked itself away in the hills of Judah. Verse 4, please. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness, because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has appointed me or anointed me as king over them. I strongly suspect that the intention of the men of Judah was, now that you are in power, David, you should punish the men of Jabesh-Gilead for showing compassion to your enemy. After all, this was the way that kings normally operated. They squashed anyone who had previously opposed them. Instead, when David hears of this, he says, I want to give these men a commendation. Even though they are not part of our group, nor are they affiliated with us, they did a noble and a good thing. How we also need to see that others who are not part of our particular fellowship, that if they are doing good things for the kingdom, we need to approve them and also commend them. Let me ask you, does this gospel account sound familiar? Teacher said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. We told them to stop. They weren't Calvary Chapel. What did Jesus say? Don't stop them, baby. I have other sheep in different folds. Actually, Jesus probably didn't say baby, but you get my drift. Verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahinam. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. The key actor in this drama is Abner, Saul's cousin and the commander of his army. If you remember, it was Abner who brought David to Saul after David killed Goliath, and then he was with Saul as they pursued David for ten years. Now, Abner was rebuked and humiliated by David when he failed to protect the king, and so Abner had no kind of special love for David now. But Abner is a politician as well as a general. He has his own agenda for Israel. He wants to maintain his power and influence in the north, and he does it by taking one of Saul's sons 
and making him king over Israel. But David already had a commander, Joab. So when David became king, what would now happen to Abner? Most of what Abner did during those seven and a half years wasn't for the glory of God, nor was it for the strengthening of Israel, but for his own self-interest. He was simply looking out for number one. Now, had Saul's captain Abner also accepted God's will and submitted to David, a costly civil war could have been averted. But loyalty to his old regime and a desire to protect his own interests motivated Abner to fight David instead of follow David. Now, Scripture doesn't say much about Ishbosheth, but it's clear that he was a weak puppet ruler who was manipulated by Abner. Look at verse 11. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now, when would David be made king over the entire nation as promised? Not until chapter 5. I don't know about you, but in real life, chapters 2 through 4 is not what I would like to see. If God has promised the throne to David, then we would prefer to connect chapter 1 neatly and immediately with chapter 5. Why must there be more delay? Why must there be so much more messy conflict? With Saul out of the scene, just put David neatly on the throne, Lord, and fulfill your promise. These are the type of questions that we ask for our own lives. The problem is, God's timetable is not always the same as ours. Now, we have been taught to prize speed today. We want to take the shortest route in the quickest way. Over the years, we've seen almost every aspect of life gain speed. We eat fast food and instant noodles. We microwave dinners and we use instant messaging. We want everything fast. In fact, being slow is almost seen as a sin today. But since it's just us here this morning, allow me to pose an uncomfortable question. Wouldn't you think that after God had chosen David and elevated him to Hebron to be the king, wouldn't you think that God would make it easy for him to now gain accession to the throne. But God doesn't. David has to go for two years watching an army assemble across from him, and then after that, he has to go through five years of a civil war. Why? Why is it when God calls you to something, God doesn't always make it easy to accomplish that task? Case in point, God told Paul that he'd be a testimony to Israel and to the kings of the Gentile world. So Paul always wanted to go to Rome. But he comes to Jerusalem, he gets in a riot, and he must be put in jail for his own safety. Then 40 Jews vowed not to eat until they killed him. So they had to whisk him away in the dead of night. 
eventually Paul has to appeal to Rome, and so he gets on a ship which, you guessed it, sinks. Paul survives, though. He makes it to shore, but while he's making a fire, a snake comes out of the wood and bites him. Have you ever been there? Once, St. Teresa of Avila was bucked off her horse into a river on the way to visit one of her monasteries. Upon getting out of the water, she said, Dear Lord, if this is how you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few. Now, not to sound irreverent, but I have been there. And I bet if you were honest, you have also. So why does God treat his kids like that sometimes? What I think is people want to make things as easy as possible for their children. But God is a good father. He just doesn't want to make us happy. He wants to make us great. But don't we hate the process? If we aren't careful, We can have the propensity of choosing happiness over holiness. And that, my friends, is a terrible trade-off. Happiness is fleeting. For example, when I had my tooth pulled not too long ago, they had me on that nitrous oxide. Honey, I was happy. They could have pulled out all of my teeth and removed a lung, and I would have cheered them the entire way. The problem was, after they removed the mask, in about 60 seconds you're toothless and can't breathe too well. We need to remember that God is is primarily interested in transporting us somewhere, as in heaven, but rather into transforming us into someone. Like Christ. First Peter 5.10 says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Verse 12, please. Now Abner, the son of Ner, a servant to Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahananim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruah, and the servants of David, went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, Let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Imagine the scene. As they sat down, one group on one side of the pool and another group, on the other side of the pool. The scene appears almost placid, the seated soldiers with the still waters in between them. But we can sense the tension. This is, after all, the coming together of two fighting men, or two fighting tribes, who are serving rival kings. Now, we aren't giving much info here, but it wouldn't surprise me if they were making faces at each other. This may be why they decided to have the contest. Did you ever have that uncle who probably should have been admitted somewhere, but at least heavily medicated? And he would tell you that he wanted to see how strong you were. 
And so he would have you hold your fist up in front of your face. And then he would grab your wrist and say, okay, pull as hard as you can. And when you did, he let go and you smacked yourself in the mouth. His name was Uncle John, by the way. But in a sense, that's what's going on here. You have a couple of guys sitting back and wanting to see how strong the other people are. So the two commanders say, let's have a control type of a skirmish. This is what men did before God finally invented football. Verse 15. So they arose and went over by number, twelve from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a very fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. We could call this a passion for your father's beliefs. What is the Latin word for father? It's the word patre. What is a passion for your father's belief? It's where we get our word patriotism. The problem is sometimes patriotism can run amok. The fatherland of Germany and Adolf Hitler. Mother Russia and Vladimir Lenin. Patriotism can be a grotesque thing like dying for your ancestors as the kamikaze pilots did for the Empire of Japan. So what began as a little contest here quickly turned into a bloodbath. That day the battlefield received a new name, the Field of Sharp Edges or the Field of Daggers. Verse 18. Now the three sons of Zeruah were there. Joab and Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. So Asahel pursued Abner, and in going he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Asahel? He answered, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right or to your left and lay hold on one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. We read that Asahel was as fleet of foot as a gazelle. I used to be in shape like that. But, to, but for me now, a triathlon is jumping in the bathtub, pulling a plug, and fighting the current. <laughs> this isn't about me. <clears throat> Here's the problem with Asahel. He is a sprinter and not a fighter. And to Abner's credit, he warned the boy repeatedly to turn back. But the boy wouldn't listen. Verse 22. So Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear, so that the spear came out of his back. And he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died, stood still. When Asahel refused to give up the chase, 
the clever Abner killed him by using one of the oldest tricks of the battlefield. He stopped suddenly and allowed Asahel to propel himself right into the end of the spear. You see, the butt end of the spear was also sharpened so the spear could be thrust into the ground and ready for action. So Abner did the old shish kebab move on him. But as an interesting side note, Asahel is like the sinner who is chasing hard after their sin. It will be the death of them if they do not turn back. Verse 24, please. Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner, and the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Ammah, which is before Gia by the road of the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand on top of a hill. And Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return for pursuing their brethren? And Joab said, As God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all Bithran, and they came to Mahanaim. Then Joab returned from following Abner, when he had gathered all the people together. Nineteen of David's servants thought Asahel were missing. But the servants of David had struck down many of Benjamin Abner's men, so that three hundred and sixty men died. And they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men went all night until the day dawned at Hebron. Basically, the end of the chapter just describes the truce that they finally agreed to. On David's side, just 20 casualties. But for every man who died on David's side, there had been 18 on Abner's side. Now, the result may have a lot to do with Abner's eagerness for a truce. That was quite the chapter, wasn't it? I'd like to finish by reminding us once again that God is directing David through all of this mess. And that's good news. Because that means he will also direct us through whatever mess we may find ourselves in. I'll close with Max Licato, who sums this up perfectly. Max introduced the idea of direction for our lives by saying, If geese had my sense of direction, they would spend their winters in Alaska. He wrote, I can get lost anywhere, seriously, anywhere. The simplest map confuses me. The clearest trail bewilders me. I couldn't track an elephant through four feet of snow. I can misread instructions to the bathroom down the hall. Indeed, once I did and embarrassed several women in a fast food restaurant in Fort Worth. I once got lost in my hotel. I told the receptionist my key wasn't working, only to realize I'd been on the wrong floor trying to open the wrong door. Several years ago, I was convinced my car had been stolen from the airport parking garage. It hadn't. I was in the wrong garage. While in Seattle, I left my hotel room in plenty of time for my speaking engagement. But when I saw the highway signs for the Canadian border, I knew I was going to be late. 
I once went for a morning jog, returned to the hotel and ate. I'd eaten two portions of the free breakfast before I remembered my hotel didn't have a breakfast bar. I was in the wrong hotel. Perhaps like me, you can relate to Columbus, who, as they say, didn't know where he was going when he left, didn't know where he was when he got there, and didn't know where he'd been when he'd gotten back. Can you relate? Of course you can. We've all scratched our head a time or two, if not at highway intersections, at least in the crossroads of life. The best of navigators have wondered, do I take the job or leave it? Accept the marriage proposal or not? Leave home or remain home? Build or buy? One of life's giant-sized questions is, how can I know what God wants me to do? And David asked it. He just learned of the death of Saul and Jonathan. Suddenly the throne is empty and David's options are now all open. So David inquired of the Lord about what to do. David makes a habit of running all of his options past God. God answered and told David what to do. The God who guided David also guides you. You simply need to consult your maker. God hasn't changed. He still promises to guide us. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There are many promises concerning God's word. Consult your maker. Discover his direction by marinating your mind in his writing. One man described it this way. Has any other book ever been described in this fashion? For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Living and powerful, the words of the Bible have life, nouns with pulse rates, muscular adjectives, verbs darting back and forth across the page. God works through these words. The Bible is to God what a surgical glove is to the surgeon. He reaches through them to touch deep within you. Christ nudges the Christ-possessed heart. For it is God who works in you both to will and do for his good pleasure. What does your heart tell you to do? What choice spawns the greatest sense of peace? Sometimes a choice just feels right. God creates the want to within us. But be careful with this. People have been known to justify stupidity based on a feeling. I felt God leading me to cheat on my wife, disregard my bills, lie to my boss, or flirt with my married neighbor. Mark it down. God will not lead you to violate his word. He will never contradict his teaching. Be careful with the phrase, God led me. Don't banner it about. Don't disguise your sin as a leading from God. He will never lie, he will never lead you to lie, cheat, or hurt. He will faithfully lead you through the words of his scripture and the advice of his faithful. Max closes with these words. God will not reveal his total plan to you only one step at a time. Be obedient and satisfied with God's working in your life. Don't fight against what God may be doing in your life right now. The very method that God may be trying to use to bless you with is the very thing you're fighting him the most over. He desires to see you established, and he desires to see you 
blessed. And we believe that, Lord, because you are the perfect Father. Every good and perfect gift comes down from you. So open our eyes, Lord. The things that we may be trying to buck against you, which are for our own good, give us the wisdom and the discernment, Lord, to be in concert and in step with your Holy Spirit. For we need you desperately. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. This being the first Sunday of the month, I'm going to have James Underwood and David Haynes come up and share communion with